Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about filmmaking from indie film to studio film and everything in between. How to make them, how to get them made, and how not to try to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Hello, welcome back listeners. My name is Robbie McCain. I'm the producer and editor of the Filmmakers Podcast. Today, I'm talking to director Rain McCormack about his spooky Halloween feature, The Village in the Woods. And it's out now on on on-demand platforms in the UK. It's a classic kind of spine-tingling ghost story like British folk horror film inspired by films like The Wicker Man. And I'm going to be talking to Rain all about it later on in the episode. But first... I'm sure you'll be keen to know that Giles has wrapped King Arthur and he'll be back on the podcast next week. We're going to hear from him in just a sec with some updates and possibly a bonus episode. All that's coming up. But right now, have you noticed the music underneath me? The slightly eerie, scary music? Well, this music is from Musicbed, and as we all know, it sucks to get bogged down in the editing process whilst you try and track down a soundtrack for your film. I've been there, you've been there, and so has the team at Musicbed, and in fact, that's the entire reason they've built their platform. By collaborating with hundreds of artists, bands, and composers, they made it easier than ever for you to get the perfect song for your film and get back to the editing bay. You can download a single song, you can download unlimited music with a subscription, or you can create a custom song or score from scratch. And their roster is growing every day. More than 20,000 songs ranging from cinematic to electronic to indie rock to hip-hop. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Filmmakers Podcast listener, they're giving you one month of subscription for free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter the promo code FILMMAKERSPOD when you check out. We're going to radio Giles right now, and then we're going to jump straight into my interview with director Rain McCormack. See you listen soon. Hello, you amazing lot. Um, I have literally just rapped on my latest feature film, Knights of Camelot. I am exhausted. I am so damn tired and quite emotional right now, but I've had an amazing time and I managed to finish the damn movie despite being rained on every day um, and despite having to constantly compromise every little thing. And also we had the Coast Guard called on us by one of our own crew. They didn't last on set much longer after that. And we had to film in a hurricane. But, 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 I filmed every scene by one. I got some amazing performances from my fantastic cast and Andrew Roger made the film look amazing. Um, I can't tell you, I can't wait to tell you all about that in the next few podcasts um, because I imagine I'll just talk about it bore you hopefully not and give you some information and um, tell you what I've learned and what I did wrong and what I did right and hopefully you can learn from that as well as filmmakers Um, but um, this Friday in the meantime there will be a mini episode a diary special if you like live from set and after wrap so do look out for that that's this Friday and most importantly I will be back hosting the podcast next Tuesday. Hallelujah! I hear you cry from the rooftops. I've missed him. No, you didn't? Um, thank you so much to Robbie for being an excellent host and podcast producer and CJ and Phil for jumping on episodes as well. You guys are legends. So, uh, mini episode this Friday. I'll be back with you Tuesday. I'll fill you in on the nights of Camelot dramas of making a action adventure with swords sometimes when the swords aren't even on set (laughs) fun and games enjoy this week's podcast I love you all I'm delighted to be joined here by director Rain McCormack hello Rain welcome hello hi hi Um, and we're at the BFI South Bank right now you might hear sort of a gentle hum that's the air conditioning we've been let into a very nice 
sort of VIP area. Thank you very much to the BFI for letting us do that. And uh, it's obviously the midst of the London Film Festival, so there's a lot of hubbub going on. But yeah, have you seen anything, Ryan? Have you managed to catch anything? No, I haven't, because I just came up today, actually, uh, from Eastbourne to meet up with the distributors who are putting out the film. But I've heard that there's some very, very good films on at the moment, so... Maybe we should stay around and watch something. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we're here to talk about your film, The Village in the Woods. Yes. Um, I know. Which is released when? It is going out on digital across the UK on um, Lightbulb Film Distribution. It's going onto Sky Store on Monday the 14th. So mm-hmm. this Monday coming up. Yeah. Uh, so all your usual players... Sky Store, awesome. iTunes, yeah. Google Play, etc., etc. So yeah, it's exciting, and it's a cult horror. Fit would would be fair to say that a supernatural horror thriller, uh, set in the English countryside. Yeah, so it's basically my love letter to seventies cinema. Mm. Um, so things like The Wicker Man and kind of like drawing yeah. from things like The Wicker Man, um, where I used to live, was right next to those woods that are actually in the film. Right. And I used to live next door to the actual pub that's in the film. Yeah. So I took that road of uh, the Robert Rodriguez style and um, decided to use what I had. Of course. And then three years later, found myself still using what I had and, uh, <laughs> to finish the film off. Rebel without a crew. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. But I did actually have a crew who worked tirelessly to bring that picture to the screen. So, yeah, it's really cool. I'm really excited. Really excited for people to see it. Yeah, so let's let's jump straight into that actually. So it's obviously your debut mm. feature. How does that feel having completed it? It is a long journey, mm. and um, you know, I think anybody knows that when they embark on their first feature. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really really exciting to see it come out. But the strange thing is, is that the screenplay which that film is obviously made from was created in 2015. Mm-hmm. We're now coming up to 2020. Yeah. So I'm kind of almost what would be potentially five years beyond that. So you can imagine the amount of experience that you get from um, the cutting side of that. And you learn so many things Mm. on a debut like that. So I suppose all I can say is that it's really, it is very exciting. Um, So that's a long kind of distended process and obviously quite typical for for filmmakers, Mm. you know, making their first feature or or second or third feature these days in the industry, um, especially here in the UK. Could you give us like a rough sort of overview of why things like this, you know, take this long? Yeah, of course, course. Well, when before I actually started making this film, I had a different screenplay, which I attempted to crowdfund. It did all right in crowdfunding for all my efforts, which was a 60 day crowdfund and putting out a video every day to try and raise that money. So, yeah, you know, I'd been to Cannes in 2015 and I came back from Cannes and I'd been touting around with this screenplay and there was no pickup on it so it was kind of like the the usual story for a filmmaker and i just decided let's as i said earlier let's use that robert rodriguez philosophy mm-hmm. use what you've got what's around me well i live in this village and this village is a village where you could drive through it if you blinked you'd miss it it's mm-hmm. one of those it's like almost like a long forgotten village in a way and I've got this pub that's next door to our house, which is, I mean, it's a very friendly pub, but it looks very run down. It hasn't got any money that's being invested into it. So it's not like your classic sort yeah. of a uh, countryside drinkery. And I've got all these woods around me. And we used to walk the woods at night with the dogs mm-hmm. and stuff. I thought it was kind of creepy and it's a bit weird and stuff. So I thought, let's use what we've got. And my idea was initially to only make a movie for 20 grand. That's mm-hmm. what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, so pr- I could fund that myself. It's a pretty ambitious. It's like a Sh- oh, listen, Shane Carruth situation. Dude, honestly. I'll be honest with you. That is so <laughs> ambitious. When I think back to myself in 2015, I think, way, you know, that is, I know people do it. So I do know that that happens. Yeah. I was just going to have somebody in on sound, a couple of friends helping out, doing running, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of thing. Anyway, I wrote this screenplay. It was originally called Harbour, which mm-hmm. is the uh, name of the pub. Yeah. In the film. And um, then... It went out to uh, an actor who's in the film, Sidney Keane, who plays mm-hmm. Arthur in the film. Yeah, of course. And then it got sent out to other people. So it went out to Richard Hope, who yeah. you know is from Poldark, Therese Bradley, who's been in Peaky Blinders. All these people wanted to come in and do this film. So suddenly I'd gone from 
what was okay where were we so can was may so wrote the screenplay around about july this is july 2015 july 2015 yeah so august september so end of october these people had had the screenplay people were really into it and so my little crew of what would be four people in that village suddenly turned into two 12 and a half ton panelux trucks wow and a crew of i think it was in the end about 85 people Hmm. that descended on this little village (laughs) so uh, more than the population of Uh, the actual village yeah slightly (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah exactly you got it and also there was a house was used as a production office right I'll never do that again. I'll be honest with you. Because <laughs> you had nowhere to go in the evening. You, <laughs> you right, no- you've hit the nail on the head. So there's one moment we're, make, we're, we're shooting. You know what it's like. You're on set. It's, you're bamboozled by information coming left, right, and saying you've got to stay on track. You've got to um, keep the narrative going, you know. And I just wanted to escape that one day. I wanted to escape. So I went, went to a house, and there was a production office in the living room we couldn't go in the living room for a while I'd go upstairs I'd go into our bedroom went into our bedroom the uh the costume girl bless her had been given instruction a nod for my partner Justine who had said yeah go and hunt for my wardrobe for something you know that we needed for on the shoot and so there was somebody in the bedroom I was like I can't go anywhere and the most (laughs) surreal thing about it was is that as soon as I just walked down and away from the shoot and then chucked to left it was just suddenly back to that normal village. It was mm. kind of like just remote, quiet. Um, so that was quite surreal, I thought. The yeah. way that descended on that village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel sorry for some of the villagers, to be honest <laughs> with you. And I do apologise to them, because in 2016, there were um, a lot of cars in that village. Mm. Um, so yeah, and then... So you, you wrote the script in 2015, you shot it in 2016. Shot the first section of it in 2016. Shot the yeah. first section. Yeah, okay. 2016. So February 2016, we shot that. Um, then went into the edit. Yeah. And um, had the classic thing, sat in the edit. It looked really cool. It was quite art house, though. Yeah. Uh, I was really indulging myself. I have to say, yeah, there's some interesting, particularly some of the dream sequences... Yeah, it reminded me of David Lynch or um, yeah, yeah. or also some of these like folk horror um, Brit films that you're referencing as well, like where there's yeah. occasionally sort of slightly psychedelic kind of sequences and stuff. And there's definitely, yeah. there's definitely, I think the dream sequences really come across well in that they offer a nice counterpoint to the the more sort of conventionally shot like uh, dialogue sequences. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm I'm glad they really work well as a dream sequence because as I mentioned to you earlier mm. um, that dream sequence was was actually kind of the ending of the film yeah so there is another cut of the ending of the film the original okay kind of cut which was cool don't get me wrong it was good but it was very art house yeah and um, the way I kind of looked at it was well to get distribution, traditional distribution, and to reach maybe a broader audience, it might not do that, mm-hmm. that way around. I think one of the things as well that I learned through that process, which I'm sure other filmmakers would concur with, is that um, you can have like um, a story down on the paper, and off the page, it kind of reads almost like some sort of Cthulhu <laughs> kind of story, and it's kind of like cool. Like an HP Lovecraft yeah, type thing. Yeah, like people can really, really get into it. But then as soon as you put imagery to that, then you've got a different proposition. Mm. And it's a different territory, totally. And that's what I found out in 2016 as I was cutting it, that I needed to change up some bits and bobs, which is why we went back in 2017. (laughs) And so you did additional shooting. Yeah, so thankfully, so I was really, really uh, on it in 2017. Every single thing that was going to be Um, additionally shot for the movie was storyboarded Mm -hmm. and I actually even went so far as to get that dropped into the timeline yeah okay so So you're actually pre-vising it yeah oh man I I wasn't going to take any risks you know (laughs) I was like I'd had to go out and raise some more money anyway so we all know what that's about and how hard that is Uh, so I went out raised some more money I didn't want to make those sort of mistakes that possibly I could have been making in 2016 you know yeah. I was aware of things so and we went along and we shot and it all dropped in beautifully 
understandably so, because obviously everyone knew exactly what they were shooting. Yeah. Um, and that just worked really, really well. But then once again, I went back in 2018. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> but this time, actually, I, I didn't have to go back and do like a full sort of, you know, week shoot so or something like just that. Pickups. It was one day. Yeah. In 2018, we went back, and we went back for one day uh-huh. to a studio in Bristol okay. to shoot Richard Hope's lines again right, okay. of what he's saying to I see. that yes, chap. Yes, at the kind of climax of the film where, yeah. where, where, where Before the things, other things are revealed. Yeah, yeah. and there's a, there's a big ceremony. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's the, that's the effect of test screening at the end of 2017. Yeah. Drove okay. me to go and do that. Well, I have to say that... that point his monologue that's actually a really powerful moment so it works doesn't it yeah yeah i was really happy with it and so uh, what was the issue before that you needed to like change the writing slightly to explain a bit more what was going on I think, or, or yeah. you need to make it more poetic or what was after test screening some people were coming away and they were just saying uh really like it loved it you know it sounds great it looks brilliant didn't understand that though what, what's that mean and I was like oh no man it's like I'm being ambiguous again yeah it's like I couldn't stop being ambiguous with the, the story as much as I try to not be it means you're respecting your audience's intelligence though right well but, but that's a tricky line to walk in a commercial marketplace and stuff right this is one of the problems is that obviously when you want to get the film sold mm-hmm. um, and you want it to go out to reach a broader audience um, if you just put out something on an art house label, it will just reach an art house audience. Yeah. And um, I don't know how tough it is to sell a film, an art house film, but I imagine it's probably quite hard as well, mm. uh, even to get the sales or the distributors yeah. involved in that process. So uh, I think it was reshooting well done and I'm glad we went back I mean when I went back if you can imagine like it's been a marathon yeah so at this point I'm sure you understand that by this point I'm kind of like dragging myself along <laughs> to finish off this film you know but you yeah. keep your spirit up and and everybody was really cool and the DP that was shooting that bit as well I mean he matched it in beautifully but you've done it now and I'm so happy you're at the end of that marathon yeah, yeah. so how did you how did you kind of stay motivated throughout that whole process I think it was just purely because I knew that it was an opportunity mm. and that it's so hard for people making that first film it really is a tough game we all know that and uh, I've listened to so many of the podcasts and yeah. uh, everyone says the same thing maybe a lot of people don't highlight it too much because it is something that maybe you want to leave behind a little bit because it's, it's full of a lot of challenges as you as you want to launch into doing your first film yeah um but i think it was the fact that it was an opportunity and i didn't want to let that opportunity go i sort of had my claws into it and mm. i knew that if i could just get that over the line then i'd have my first film done fantastic you know that's the kind of determination you need when you're you're working on a feature like that because everything it doesn't matter how well you plan like there will be a point where various things fall apart and you have to face that yeah and you have to know how to deal with that and accept it yeah Um, and it sounds like you in the face of (laughs) sort of adversities um did really well so yeah yeah. i mean i don't play it up too much because I well I suppose what namely because I wouldn't really want to be like the poster boy for Mm. you know the struggling filmmaker but I know that across the board everybody and I think actually it doesn't matter if it's second third fifth tenth film yeah there's probably still challenges there's probably still struggles absolutely yeah so they just change right yeah depending on what position you're in yeah yeah tell me a bit about your sort of early career why are you why you ultimately wanted to make this film well I'd done a couple of shorts I'd self shot one short which did the Cannes film short corner type thing Um, and I mean when I say I self shot that I literally self shot that (laughs) it was like uh, the guy none of this um, Michael Mann and I occasionally look through the viewfinder and that hey listen (laughs) this was hands on this was so hands on I was like sort of moving the the, uh, camera on the slider whilst my foot was on the pedal for the smoke machine (laughs) while my peak cap was off my head wafting it calling action as I'm pulling tracking back the shot and I quite like that shot actually in this film wow yeah I'd done a couple of shorts I think it's just for me really it's just the excitement of cinema yeah I just love it and I've always loved it since I was a kid I'm, I'm not that kid though I'm not going to say I'm the guy that had the the Super 8 uh, you know <laughs> I know that you always hear this people are like oh, you I was do, making yeah. films at 8 
I never did that. That yeah. wasn't my thing. Um, so when did you kind of get into film, like to say? Because not everyone obviously does this. I mean, famously, George Miller, director of Mad Max, he was a doctor before yeah, making yeah. the first Mad Max, and he just yeah. randomly decided, oh, And that's interesting, right? Yeah. yeah. That's a really big career change for yeah, him. Yeah. But brilliant that he did it, because yeah. what brilliant films. I think for me, it's because I'm really, really into music. Yeah. And I love music and I played in bands and I trained as a sound engineer. Yeah, you of course do the original score to uh, I did the score in the Woods. On the yeah. Village in the Woods, yeah. So for so me. So you're kind of a John Carpenter now or a Rodriguez. <laughs> like, you do <laughs> well, the score I mean, as well. standing on the shoulder of giants, <laughs> right? I suppose when I listen to music, I always see visuals. Yeah. And uh, that had been an ongoing thing for me. I don't know why I didn't actually just go, let's go make film. Mm it never became that obvious to me if that makes any sense sure, it was always yeah. a part of my process uh, writing music I'll always see it in visuals in my, in my mind um, so and I think it's true to say that a good, a good song is like a film yeah. you know they're always stories right they're, they have that sort of engagement absolutely the listener yeah 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 um, so I suppose really back to your question which was essentially why did you get into that it's just a love of of the form really ultimately I've always been a I've always loved film always loved like I remember seeing um, like a movie like Animal Kingdom about mm. eight years ago yeah and watching that film great thinking, film I was just blow. I thought wow like the soundtrack on this thing as well yeah this is subtle this isn't like hitting you in the face but each character's got this this sort of vibe. and I know that's across the board in, in, in many different films but that one really stood out to me yeah and absolutely. stood out in the shooting style and stuff mm-hmm. it's such a great I need to watch it again Animal Kingdom it's, uh, it's an amazing movie that whole kind of new Australian movement is really it. Um, it's kind of have you seen The Rover as yeah. well yeah really that's really great good. film yeah. great ending yeah really just like brings the, you know the hairs up on the arms that one yeah. so I think it was films like that that uh, really just triggered off that idea like hold on a minute I could do this yeah I'm already writing sort of ambient music and yeah all these different vibes so why don't I just take those pictures out of my mind and and put them down yeah and see it on the screen and it's so funny you say that as well because I find um I find kind of writing and research quite difficult but mm. if I do if I listen to music I have that same thing I like I listen to a lot of soundtracks yeah same here and yeah. uh will kind of somehow so that's the moment when you're listening to stuff that, you know it's kind of like an activator your brain then comes up with these ideas for totally. set pieces or or sequences and stuff yeah, so yeah. yeah I'm right there with you on that yeah uh, so how did you actually go about getting into the position where practically you were saying like I'm going to make a film I'm going to make a feature the music industry the bottom of that was dropping out quite a bit I think probably down to downloading <laughs> so budgets were dropping out and um it was it was getting more and more difficult yeah. to sort of find work to do that sort of thing. I was very fortunate, I suppose, uh, in the respect that my overheads were very low in yeah. life. To be honest with you, I just completely thought if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. Yeah. So I've got to take this opportunity, whatever happens. So I pulled out a couple of credit cards as well. Mm. I did whatever I had to do. You did the Kevin Smith. I did the Kevin Smith. (laughs) I knew I had to live. Um, I mean, I live with my uh, girlfriend. We've been together 18 years. She has a very solid job, though, in in graphic design. We had an income coming in. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that I was almost living on the streets to do it. It wasn't like that. Because that is a practical concern for a lot of uh, filmmakers. Like um, people people who might be listening to this thinking like, I want to get into films, but I'm unable to sort of quit this sort of job or whatever and if you read stories about filmmakers I mean we've had filmmakers on the past who have full-time jobs and they save up and then they they make a feature every year or whatever so you can make it work but um it's just good to know from someone who who was in a situation where you as you said you made use of what you could and you totally you didn't you didn't kind of make excuses for yourself because oh I don't have access to the big studio or I don't have access to this huge budget or whatever yeah yeah totally I mean we both know it's notoriously hard right to Mm -hmm. um, get through the door in the film industry everyone knows that it's you know it's not like it's hidden it's um, but I think you've really got to my sort of saying that I say to myself is you've got to be bold you've got to be brave and you've got to be seen Mm. and if you do the first two you get going 
Yeah. The final one is putting the work out, right, is to be seen. And I don't think it matters if it takes you three years or like uh, Simon Cox, who was a guest you had on. Yeah. Uh, if it takes you, whatever that was, 17 years for him to do. I think if you've got the passion, then the passion will keep you going when you feel low with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do... F- I do sympathise with people where they maybe they've they're in a, a situation in life where they've got kids yeah. or something like that. Because I'm obviously I'm a bit older, I'm 46, mm-hmm. um, so I can understand the difficulties that people have. But I think that if you've got a really strong story and it's something that you really feel like you should tell, or you need to tell, you just have to go for it. Yeah, you have to go for it. There are ways to do it. And people, it's very interesting to say that as soon as you engage in that idea of being bold and being brave with it and pushing forward, literally like I sort of look at it like the guy walking down the street to the tube station, you know where he's going, he's going that way and he's not stopping for anybody or she's not stopping for anybody. It's that mentality. Because what starts happening is that momentum seems to get other people to join in with you. Mm. And they like that. They want to help you. Yeah. I think when you kind of go in almost panhandling a little bit, which I know people can end up doing a little bit, it's inevitable that that will happen, people shy away from it. Mm. Maybe it's a, you know, evolution thing. People don't want to be with the person that they feel is going down the chute or something. Yeah. But if you're, if you're brave enough to stand up and just go for it, I think people will support it. No, I, I think that's a really good point and really good advice for, for filmmakers because... Uh, it chimes with something Rowan Attlee said last week on, on the podcast and he, yeah. he was saying um, it's kind of like a, almost like a military situation where you know people want to know like your crew you know people might be testing you as a sort of commanding officer and thinking is this person yeah, yeah. and and you're right if you show that you care yeah. and you're willing to kind of put the effort in and, and get it done and you know of you'll course. see it to the finish then people will respect you and people will jump on board and, pe- and that is infectious people will be inspired by that whereas totally. conversely if you are yeah unsure mm. and uh, very negative pessimistic that's obviously going to deter people away totally <laughs> so it's a really good point yeah I, I understand why people end up getting a bit negative about it um, but I just think that if you've got the determination and the will and the drive then you you can't not be seen by people yeah you just have to do that you have to just push and go for it I really don't think there's any other way to I mean obviously if you are very very fortunate and you end up in a situation where you're working with more experienced producers brilliant Mm. but that doesn't seem to be the story generally yeah. a lot of first timers you just got to go for it yeah, you know yeah, yeah. and suffer the consequences <laughs> like uh, a whole crew in bar- like landing in your village <laughs> and people looking at you going what's going on practically how did you go about funding the film Village in the Woods funding the film okay so the first section of funding came in in 2016, obviously. Yeah. When you say the first section of funding, you'd written the script and you'd you'd used that to pitch for this funding? or There was a couple of major investors were meant to put into it. And then, sadly, actually, in 2016, halfway through shooting, one of them pulled out, mm. which is a classic story. Fortunately, there were some private investors which were already involved in it. Who, who came on board. Yeah. Um, and then they came on board again in 2017 and then again in 2018. Fantastic. So they were really, really supportive. And uh, yeah. So, but it was all prior equity. Okay. You know? It wasn't from any film funds or anything like that. None of these people actually had put into film before either. Okay. And obviously there was a portion of the crowdfund which I'd done previously, which I transported onto yeah. that film as well. So, so was this kind of... Uh, just various connections that you had like from from family from you know people meeting people at festivals and stuff like uh what was your kind of process for that for finding sort of individuals well you know what you know what i found what really happens with raising money is that it comes from the most random areas yeah you you can have the best game plan ever and then suddenly you're speaking to a guy like I was. I was do- doing boxing at the time. Right. I was speaking to my boxing coach and I said, I really need to get an accountant. I'm doing this film. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, give my accountant a call sort of thing. So he got him on the phone. I spoke to him. And actually, Daz, hi, Daz, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> Daz has been brilliant, this accountant guy. He brought in other 
private equity investors, basically. Wow. And he supported the film all the way through up and till today. He's still supporting that. And had he, had he ever worked in, with, in Never, film before? Never, right. before. And I don't think, sorry, Darren, I don't think he knew what he's getting involved with. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, they've been absolutely amazing, to be honest with you. There's three chaps there and um, they've been very, very supportive. And they've never really batted an eyelid at anything that I've said that we need maybe an addition to and stuff. Fantastic. Because um, we did a pace cut on the film as well. We had a, I must mention this chap, Oalotti, who was a guy who originally cut the season one of Game of Thrones. Right. And um, I got an introduction to him. And lovely, lovely chap who took time out on his weekends initially. And he came down to me. And he sat in my edit suite and we tightened up the film a bit more. Mm. And then he did some more additional cutting in 2018, the end of 2018. He did a pace cut on the film. Yeah. So uh, that was after some more test screening, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it, another guy who stuck with us, you know. And tell me more about some of the inspirations behind the film, because you mentioned it was a, a love letter to 70s cinema. What sort of... Um, what kind of films were in your mind when you were when you were writing this and then directing it, coming up with the visuals as well? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Naturally, Wicker Man, mm -hmm. but uh, once again, standing on the shoulders of giants because <laughs> you know these films are amazing. Wicker Man's so great. It's such a strange. If you if you haven't seen the listeners, if you haven't seen the the uncut version that the BFI released a few years ago. No, I haven't. It's and I should, shouldn't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely bizarre because they put all the scenes in that was originally censored out, which is a lot of the kind of pagan ritual kind of the earlier, oh, really? the earlier scenes okay. where the Edward Woodward uh, Sergeant Howie is walking around the village and at night he's seeing various people frolicking in fields ah. and stuff and you know there's a lot of interesting weird slow motion stuff kind of similar to the dream sequences actually that you've, you've yeah, done in, well, they, in Village in the Woods so, yeah. yeah totally another thing it reminded me of as well is the some of the Hammer films so Devil Rides Out there's another Christopher yeah, Lee joint yeah. but that obviously contains a lot of uh, satanic uh, worshipping and stuff a like lot. that. A lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I was going to say one thing with the Wicker Man, which I found was really funny, um, which I'd never noticed before, but when we went back and looked at the Wicker Man in 2018, so we were thinking, because we had to go and reshoot this yeah. thing with Richard Hope, I was thinking, you know, oh, yeah, um, how do they explain that to him? And it was fantastic. I didn't realise this line that it says. Mm. Um, he turns round to Edward Woodward and he says, our, our team of researchers found you. And I thought, a team of researchers on this island? And it just brought a vision in my mind of people with monitors yeah. and stuff like that looking for this virgin, virgin <laughs> police officer <laughs> somewhere on the main aisle. Um, yeah, but the Wicker was fantastic. Um, Feels like Don't Look Now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Wicker Man was famously the B movie to Don't Look Now, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. So they, totally. Those two. If you want a good British horror double feature, listeners, check check both those two out. Yeah, right? yeah. And, uh, that's just been remastered as well. Yeah. Don't Look Now is just an amazing piece of filmmaking. The editing on that film. Yeah, absolutely. That tells a story in a way that I don't think any other director could have done. And when they went to remake. Don't look now. And I love the fact that uh, Donald Sutherland mm. took to social media and took to the press and said, don't remake Don't Look Now. Because you can never remake that film the way that that wonderful director did. Yeah. You know, um, and that's testament to him, his editor. Just the way that they put it together and stitched it together. Yeah. It's a great trip through it. There's something really innately kind of unique about Nicholas Rogue's directing. Cause yeah. It, and it's just something, it's quite... I don't know, there's a kind of British quality to the, like, it's hard to sort of explain, but you don't get, something you don't get from even Hollywood films at that time. Yeah, he really, really got amazing. it, didn't he, that yeah. story? All of his films have this kind of great stamp on it, and yeah. but, but Don't Look Now is kind of, yeah, one of the, one of the kind of jewels in the crown of his, of his work. It's, but, yeah. it's an amazing film. Uh, just that moment of when 
Donald Sutherland is looking at his um, negatives. Yeah, yeah. And the red, the, the red ink. Off, yeah, that is. Uh, you know, it's cinema magic, It's one of these things it? where it's a terrifying image and you're not quite completely, sure why. Yeah. Completely, and it's very primal. Mm. And just by the very fact that the guy's clearly got some form of psychic ability yeah. that's coming through there. I mean, love it. Love those films. Loved all the, the sort of um, the Hammer films. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't be able to name all the Hammer films, really. <laughs> but just that sort of two o'clock viewing in the morning. Yeah. That sort of stuff that you just absorb in. Yeah. And maybe you've even fallen asleep halfway through because it's really early in the morning. Yeah. But all those sounds and everything, it just goes in. I just really wanted to just do uh, a film which was a testament to all those things that have come and gone, you know? Mm. I think a lot of horror these days is... And I, I love a lot of modern horror. Um, but the reliance on gore at times yeah. is quite heavy. Yeah. And I suppose I could have done that with The Village in the Woods. I could have gone down a different road and done more gore to it yeah but i wanted to do more atmosphere i wanted to kind of create an ambience yeah that i hope that as a viewer you can sense that there's something foreboding something odd going on around you in the actual environment itself yeah even though it's so suffocating the environment absolutely yeah you, know? you definitely get a sense of that ominous foreboding kind of atmosphere yeah definitely. yeah obviously working with actors considering you hadn't done a feature before what was it like kind of did you do any preparation for it or what was your attitude approach to people on, on yeah set? no totally I mean um, I didn't sadly I didn't have any time to do any prep work with the actors the actors were fantastic they they came with uh, their own offerings mm. for the role because um, it's a bit of a murderer's row of, of classic British kind of TV talent and you know like some great great actors in there. I mean you got, will notice their faces yeah, yeah. you know uh, like uh, say Rebecca Johnson who yeah. plays Emily in the film absolutely everyone will know her she is Rob Brydon's wife yeah. in The Trip yeah um, brilliant actress fantastic lady um, Therese Bradley you know going back to Young Adam that she mm -hmm. did um, feature film then up to things like Peaky Blinders I think she's on she's done a really long run on River City in Scotland yeah. she's moved back to Scotland uh, and I, everyone will recognise Richard Hope, obviously, and yeah. stuff like that. And then some of the new faces, like Beth Park, fantastic RSC actress, you know, really, really strong actress. I think she's got a really big future mm. as, a, as an actress. She's great to work with. Um, but my, my method with them on that shoot was kind of like just sit back and see how they offered it up because there was a lot of smaller spaces we were working in yeah so say for example like the pub like very much like this room that we're in they've got to work that floor and i know what camera shots i want to get and i know what i want to put across so what i'd let them do is generally play in the space and give their offering and then just tweak it a little bit mm. because i trusted them i knew that they knew how they would deliver yeah. those roles and very rarely did I have to step in and just kind of just adjust something a little bit because um, their offerings were so strong which I think was really good it, I was fortunate really to have such great actors working with me on that mm. you know um, yeah and what was your approach to the score as well because obviously you, you did the score <laughs> the yourself score. Yeah. You, you said music's a big part sure. of how you get inspired by films yeah um, was it the kind of thing where you had exactly what you were wanting in your head whilst you were shooting and so you had a sort of idea of I know I'll score this with this or was it all worked out in the editing stage? Um, okay, confession. I scored the film three times. Wow. Completely. <laughs> I can't believe it. That's why I'm greyer. Right? <laughs> Listen. So the first, the first time it was a heavy metal kind of oh, track. Well, I tell you now, actually the first score... Um, the first score was maybe a little bit more experimental. Yeah. Um, it worked. It was fine. It wasn't as horror. Yeah. Um, it played more on the emotive side of it, maybe on Nikki's side. So was it quite like a kind of like a Jallo score, like a Goblin score almost for you know, like, yeah. like Suspiria and Deep Red, where they have the Italian horror films. Where Can you have, feel that? Where they have kind of a kind of rock influence on there yeah no, I, di I didn't go I didn't pull out my guitar at all. <laughs> it would have been tempting to do so then I scored it again in um, 2017 so the sound team 
the guys who mixed this, Graham and Adam Daniel, out at uh, Elstree. Yeah. Uh, we went back to them three times. Do you believe it? <laughs> I know, man. Perfectionist, but that's the music side, right? Yeah. So the the second time I scored it, it was good. It, I'd been really getting into Dark. Have you seen Dark on Netflix? Oh yeah, the German uh, series. Oh, man, it's I fantastic. Mean, yeah, and Ben Frost score on that. Yeah, it's the was, superior Stranger Things, in my opinion. It's amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Season one just blew me away, and once again, Ben Frost score on that was just phenomenal. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. That sort of like harrowing cello that pitches down and mm. stuff and I thought wow I wouldn't mind a bit of that so I went back in and I started fiddling when I know my fiddling went on to like more or less rescored it <laughs> and um, and then in 2018 I I just thought you know what I really need to pull this back a bit on the score because I want to have like a feeling of tension. I want you to live in the world at the yeah. start of the film. So I don't know if you noticed, but there's not really much score at the start of the film until you get into the moment in that pub. Yeah, in it definitely blends morning. into the background. And actually yeah. one of the biggest mistakes filmmakers make on their, on their first few films is having a score that's like too oppressive and too kind of obvious. It's too dominant. Um, because it really can distract. Um, I've done like some you know judging and stuff for, for for smaller film festivals yeah. and selections and that's always like a big thing where everything else can be great but the score could jump out so i think you probably made the right call there in making it more subdued because you don't necessarily mm. pick up on it but you get the atmosphere that it's that yeah it's trying to completely give completely and then and then obviously for the climax then we're up i'm in and we're up you know and um going back to your point there saying that about that i think like that and i know this i can say this because i'm in the arena and i've done this <laughs> in 2016 or 2017 so the score then was probably a little bit more dominant like you're saying yeah and the reason being is and i'd say i reckon it comes from insecurity mm. it comes from insecurity because you you, you know you're going to go out with this and so you're kind of looking for things to support it underneath. And I know what you're saying. I hear that in other films sometimes, and I just think, oh, yeah, I know that mistake. And I suppose it's subjective again, isn't it, as well? Mm. Some things really do work well with a heavy scoring on them. But for me, generally, it's about when it is subtle and subdued. And then when it comes in, where it's meant to come in, then it's telling you, really reinforcing that you should feel this yeah. or that you should do this. Sometimes it can be so early on that stuff comes in where you're trying to tell an audience something. You shouldn't be. Like, you should maybe let them make their own mind up yeah. until you want to highlight something. And maybe I was making those early mistakes. I'd never scored a film before this. so. Mm. But obviously by the time I'd done the third score, uh, I felt like I'd scored three films. Mm. <laughs> One of my favourite composers is Carter Burwell. Oh, I don't know. Who, Who's uh, this guy? So he, he does a lot of the Coen Brothers stuff. Ah. And he also did fan. Being John Malkovich. Okay. And uh, he's done like a few bits and pieces for other sort of auto directors. But um, his he's got a famously very, uh, very subdued style. Nice. So in No Country for Old Men, sometimes he'll have like a score but it will just be like one note or something on, mm. a, on a guitar or, or uh, some sort of or piano or something and it will be so subtle it almost yeah. sounds like part of the sound design yeah yeah um, love that and you almost don't realise it but then if you watch it back it's like wow it's it's doing so much with so little um, so yeah definitely well, I completely agree with you and No Country for Old Men which is uh, in maybe my top 10 yeah. sort of movies I love the fact that the Coen brothers were brave enough to not actually score it that way yeah. that it, it leaves it for you and the atmosphere the, the atmosphere at the start of that that, that shot yeah there's Josh so much Brolin. tension yeah. yeah and the sound and stuff and that's something in the village in the woods that I really wanted to get across if you ever get the chance and I hope you do get the chance to actually hear it on the 5.1 because mm. uh, well, I actually listen I, I've got a surround system oh, myself did? and I watched it did on my TV did you hear like, the yeah. ambience of the pub yeah, and the, absolutely. the winds yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. that was something that was really important to me because obviously coming from music it's sound to me and I think the uh, the guys who did the sound mix as well I think they were quite relieved that I was a director that was coming from the position of sound is incredibly important to me mm. uh, in fact I got named by uh, Adam Daniel hi Adam if you're listening who's the mixer remix yeah. he called me 39 steps uh, <laughs> yeah I know, I know classic Hitchcock reference yeah yeah the reason he called me 39 steps is because I went through the whole Foley track and I found 
roughly about 39 steps, which I felt were missing. <laughs> As in um, foot, footsteps. Yeah, yeah, yeah because the foley, there was yeah. masses of foley were done on it, on the film, uh, which is amazing art. It sounds incredible. But uh, yeah, no, I've actually found each step which was missing. <laughs> and they were saying, well, it's about feel. There's two foley types. One's feel and one's literal. Yeah. And now I understand more. I'm like, yeah, no, I like the feel thing. Yeah, no, I'm good with that. But at the time I was like, oh, there's a step missing. No, no there's another step missing. And they were like meticulously stitching these little steps back in, <laughs> these little footsteps. So lastly, Rain, have you got yeah. any advice for uh, filmmakers who... Uh, maybe, or, or people out there sort of looking to, they want to make a film, they want to know what their sort of first steps are, and they want to know what they should have known. Can you tell people, sort of, having gone through this process mm. yourself, what advice can you give to people who are looking to make their own feature? The first thing I would say is that, remember this, you're never spending much money when you're writing. So, really get a strong script. Don't feel like you are going to shoot something then you're going to have to go back the next year because mm. it's a tiring long arduous process having to do that and um, some people do actually give up halfway through that you know they just oh, I just can't carry on so I think that if you look at it from that perspective a good story is only a good story when everyone else tells you it's a good story not when you think it's just a good story unless it's a story that you're so passionate about that you've got to tell but when you sit at home or wherever it is writing that editing doesn't cost you £700 a day to do. That is your time. You can spend as long as you like. You are basically editing the film when you're writing. We all say, don't we? We know that when you've shot the film, you go and almost edit a different film in a way. Mm. But there's so much you can do at the script, the script stage of it. And um, I would definitely say to any newcomers, make sure that that script is watertight. Yes, brilliant that your mum likes it fantastic but send it to the hardest person the, the biggest cynic in the room <laughs> and get their feedback and don't be afraid of their feedback because that feedback will probably actually make it into a stronger movie if they're coming from the right place absolutely and then you've got a st strong kick-ass story mm. and with a strong kick-ass story you are literally 70% of the way there yeah because the other bits that you've got to put in place well start shouting out for people start shouting out for people to help you mm -hmm. raise up money look at the realistic side of it though as well that you know um if you haven't got really no name cast in a film the chances are that it's not going to pick up the biggest biggest distribution on the planet because it won't you have to understand that it's just a reality of the film business itself the way it works yeah but it should never stop you you know um so but I definitely would say the first thing is always the story. Mm. If you get that right, then you're a long way there with it. More so than you think, I think. Because I can speak in hindsight to think about myself in 2015 and writing. In reality, maybe if I'd spent a little bit longer writing it, maybe I wouldn't have been going back in 2017, mm. something like that. I'm happy I did because obviously uh, I learnt a lot but yeah. I definitely would say that it's in the writing yeah 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 that's really good advice and I'd also extend that as well to the storyboarding as well totally because um, I mean there's a great bit of the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes where Peter Jackson kind of praises you know story storyboarding mm. saying like it only costs for a few pens and bits of paper and that's much cheaper than than making a that's film that's it right <laughs> yeah so if you can get your because i have to say there are some really nice there are some shots in in village in the woods where the blocking of the actors is really there's some really kind of nice images of the, yeah. the way people are standing in the frame and yeah. it looks kind of like graphically like very kind of nice so and I'm, I'm assuming maybe those are the scenes where like they were storyboarded very carefully oh uh, yeah yeah but, so um, I think I know what kind of scenes you're talking about like at the end where the the, three, the villagers are kind of standing at the foot of the stairs and uh, yeah. whilst things are happening in, in the bedroom yeah. upstairs there's some nice shots like that and I think yeah definitely even if you if you if you kind of don't think you can draw just do stick figures just do kind of your approximation of where you see the actors standing in the totally. space because that will help you so much when you're actually there on the day <laughs> i agree i agree and you're not having to make that decision yeah yeah i mean the 
maybe this should go on the DVD. This would be pretty cool. Mm. But I've got a video which shows my storyboards against what you're seeing in the film. Oh, nice. And I'm literally cross-fading or uh, wiping across the screen. Yeah. And so many of the shots are exactly what were on my board. Yeah. Like you're saying, what you could notice, the positioning. Mm. And funnily enough, that shot is actually on that video. I thought so. So, and and I found a storyboard artist. I know storyboard artists can be quite expensive, but I found a chap who was in India. Yeah. uh, And I went on to a um, concept art artist sort of uh, page on Facebook, reached out to this guy, and I'm so happy for this guy. His name's Chandra, and he's been so supportive. He was brilliant. Um, he did a load of storyboarding for me so we just did it via on email essentially yeah. I'd kind of like sort of um, you know um, use my iPad or whatever just to kind of show him yeah. what I wanted uh, in my very bad drawing style and then he'd bring uh, throw him back over the fence at me but it just goes to show you that you can find people again it's like you don't have to actually be spending no. hundreds of pounds on a storyboard artist there are people out there who want to work mm. and who want that leg up to do it and the brilliant thing is with Chandra Chandra has gone on to do I think at least six other directors in the UK awesome. of their work who have known that I've used him Yeah. so it's gone that way for him it's a fantastic reign where can people follow you online? oh uh, online well I have a very very tiny Twitter account which I only opened recently so that's uh at Rain McCormack and um, we've got Break Free which is the name of the production company Mm -hmm. so that's on Instagram that's on Facebook as well and obviously there's the uh, Facebook page for the Village in the Woods Yeah. so come and join the other 11,500 people on there fantastic who I hope are feverishly waiting for Monday to drop and you can obviously follow the Filmmakers Podcast at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter. You can follow me at Robbie McCain. Or you can follow Giles at uh, Giles Alderson on Twitter. He, he's quite good at the Twitter game. He gives a lot. I'm not, I'm not so great, but yeah. <laughs> Occasionally, I like, to, I like to sort of go for quality over quantity with my posts. Um, that's, my, that's really just an excuse because I'm lazy. Where can people watch the film? We mentioned it at the top of the pod, but as well, like where can people watch uh, Village in the Woods? Yeah, so um, it's coming out on the digital platforms on monday so that's sky store uh, amazon google play yeah itunes virgin media any and all of the place where i think you can download and buy yeah um i think it might be coming out on dvd early 2020 oh so that's cool It'd be those, nice for those of you copy. physical media fans yeah yeah are we going to get some good extras on that? or Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> behind the scenes of the village uh, actually being overrun by the film crew? And <laughs> well, there is some great footage as well, yeah. So um, you might well do. Yeah, yeah. exciting. Yeah. And definitely definitely check that out, listeners, if you're interested and inspired by some of the things Rain's talked about today. Um, check out the film, support it, support indie film. Yes. Don't just give all your money to, to Disney and, no. and the big studios. No, but they are good. <laughs> they are good. Support indie. Support, support your local indie film as well. Being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to do well and rise up, it's your duty to send the elevator back down. If you like this, please share, subscribe to us on iTunes, maybe give us a review. There'll be a new show out next Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Until then, stay well, work hard, and try to take another step forward to making your indie film. Rain, thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye.